As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy Magazine's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. This is episode two in our latest avatar on this feed. FP Live is where we have discussions with the smartest thinkers and doers in global affairs. Every week, we interview policymakers, world leaders, writers, and also just people with interesting takes. Our discussions are first and foremost substantive. The way I think about them is I want to learn something new. And I learned a lot from the discussion I'm about to bring you. When Russia began its war in Ukraine, leaders in the West were quick to say they would bring Moscow to its knees. The most aggressive and targeted sanctions in the history of the world were deployed to inflict pain on Russian President Vladimir Putin. Sure enough, Russia's economy suffered in all kinds of ways, but not enough to actually stop the war. A new forecast by the IMF predicts that Russia's economy will actually grow by 0.3% in 2023. That's right, grow, not contract. And that's while an economy like the United Kingdom's is expected to shrink. One can interpret that data in a variety of ways. Of course, it's just a projection and it's one of many. It also comes after a year in which Russia's economy did, in fact, contract by quite a lot. Even so, there is a live debate about sanctions and how effective they actually are. Not only that, but whether we have unrealistic expectations of them. And it's nuanced. Because so much of this debate depends on goals, on timelines, and the behavior of a range of actors that influence outcomes. All of this raises complex questions about other aspects of foreign policy. Think about America's sanctions on China's ability to access semiconductors. Many foreign policy experts wonder whether the U.S. and the West are beginning to overuse their sanction power. If that's the case, it has ramifications. We're already beginning to see the rise of non-dollar transactions between countries in the global south, especially since many of them don't want to align with U.S. foreign policy choices. And it's all tied to how we think about an era of American dominance and whether that era is beginning to end. So many questions, right? I found the best two people for answers. Agat Demaray is the Global Forecasting Director at the Economist Intelligence Unit and author of Backfire, How Sanctions Reshape the World Against U.S. Interests. And Nicholas Mulder is an Assistant Professor of History at Cornell University and the author of The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. Both are repeat contributors to FP, of course. Remember, if you want to watch these FP Lives live, as it were, join us as a subscriber. Go to foreignpolicy.com, use the code FPLIVE for a 15% discount. Subscribers even get to send in questions, which, as you know, I often pose on their behalf. Let's dive in. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Welcome to FP Live. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. 
And you've both written terrific recent books on the topic of sanctions. I'm very proud to say that FP has excerpted both books. Our viewers today can read those on the related content tab on our site. But I also, of course, urge everyone to go and buy those books. So, Nick, uh, let me start with this. As I said, the IMF has forecasted that Russia will grow by 0.3% this year. That's grow by, not contract by. Although, of course, it comes after a year in which the Russian economy did contract by a fair bit. Even so, sanctions were meant to have crippled the Russian economy. What happened? Well, it's interesting to think about the expectations a year ago, because in March of 2022, the International Institute for Finance still had projections of a 15% contraction. And now I think most reasonable estimates put it somewhere between 3 and 4%. I think the, I, the IMF data might be a bit on the low side, but at any rate, it was a, a really much less significant contraction than expected. Uh, there are a number of things that happened, but one place to start would be Russia's policy response. Countries under sanctions are not passive, and the West has learned how to crisis fight, stop financial crisis since 2008 rather well. But other countries have taken on that toolbox, and they managed to avoid a big financial crisis. And then on top of that, I think in a year of a general economic turmoil, recovery from the pandemic, Russia's position as a big commodity exporter gave it a certain amount of leverage over other countries. So it's been able to readjust more trade than we expected. It's found back channels. And I think those things together account for much of why uh, the sanctions have worked uh, less well than expected. Now, Gat, in December, you argued in FP that sanctions on Russia were indeed working. Do you still think that's true? Absolutely, more than ever. Um, I think that sanctions on Russia are working, but I think there has been a lot of confusion about the effectiveness of sanctions against Russia because their objectives haven't been stated very clearly. And so if you don't have the objectives being very clear, I think it's very easy to think that sanctions on Russia don't work. I think that it was never about an economic collapse of Russia. Russia is the ninth largest economy in the world, so I don't think that a collapse out of Venezuela is even possible. I don't think it was about regime change. We know from history that this never works. I think that Cuba example is a very good one here. And I also don't think that Western countries thought that sanctions would be a magic tool that would change Putin's thinking from one day to another. I think that the point really of sanctions was twofold. The first one was to send a diplomatic message of solidarity and unity with Ukraine, and also a message of transatlantic collaboration to the Kremlin. And from that perspective, as I said in the foreign policy piece, I think mission accomplished. And then the second objective, which I think will be a slow one, gradual, cumulative objective, is about making it more difficult for Russia to wage war in Ukraine economically, financially, and technologically. And I think just to finish, actually, on your point about the fact that maybe Russia will record growth this year, the IMF forecast is 0.3%, but I would say actually this forecast is an outlier. It is much more positive than other forecasts, for instance, from the World Bank. So this is a projection, but I think it is worth keeping in mind that this comes after a recession last year in 2022. And even if there is stagnation this year, Russia's GDP will not go back to its pre-war level before at least 2027. So not really a great picture for a Russian economy. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, uh, before I go into further questioning, just I'm curious about how we can trust, I mean, we can't trust Russian data. So what metrics 
uh, do we use to judge the efficacy of sanctions? And this is a question from one of our subscribers, uh, Adriano Arietti. Uh, Agat, maybe you want to take that on? Well, we can't trust Russian statistics. The way I would put it is that Russia has made statistics a tool in its propaganda war, in its disinformation war, and statistics for Russia are fair game. So I would say we need to be cautious about Russian official statistics. What is clear is that the situation cannot be better than what the statistics say. So for instance, the Russian statistics officially say that the GDP of the Russian economy contracted by 4% year on year in November. It can't be more positive than this. It could be worse than that. And just one more word about this. External trade data are classified now in Russia. So just to give you an example, an anecdote, the way one can have a think about Russia's external trade, because no, these data are trade secrets, which does show that there is a problem probably with the Russian economy, because I don't think the Kremlin would classify data if they were showing a great picture, is to have a look at customs data from every other country that Russia is doing business with. Hmm. Nick, I, I know there are sort of some disagreements between sort of your take uh, and Agat's take. One of the areas about what is the point of sanctions and whether the aim is a short-term impact or a longer-term impact. Where do you fall on this in terms of specifically the sanctions on Russia? Were they designed primarily for a longer-term impact? Because it's not really stopping Putin from attacking Ukraine. Well, I think that there's different interpretations that are possible on that point. And it also depends a lot on what you think this war was meant to be. Because I think a lot of us would say that this war, as initially conceived by the Kremlin as an invasion, was meant to be over quickly. And potentially that also has a counterpart in the kind of financial effect we were hoping for in the first few months. When those didn't turn out to be the case, many people did indeed switch to defending a position and saying, it's going to be the technology embargo that will work. These longer term measures will have an effect. But now it's clear that as this is becoming a war of attrition and it's going now into its second year, the sanctions effort also will be a long-term campaign of degradation. And I agree that with Agat that if the objective is to make things more difficult for Russia, then obviously the sanctions have worked. I do think uh, it's fair to ask a bit more of them, right? There were lots of claims made about how this would present insurmountable obstacles within a few months. And uh, in that sense now, we've seen adaptation on both sides. And I think that that muddies the waters a little bit. Uh, and in general, I think you could probably provide a nuanced picture by asking not whether sanctions work or not, but what are they doing and what are they not doing? We both agree they are degrading the Russian economy and they are forcing difficult adjustments for the Kremlin and also some adjustments for us, like the G7 price cap. What are they not doing? Indeed, uh, forcing Putin to break off the invasion or cause insurmountable problems that uh, make him stop, you know, bombarding Ukrainian cities and those sorts of things. So I think that's a, a better way of disentangling uh, what is and what isn't working. Mm. And let me just push you, Nick, on one of these things. You mentioned the oil price cap, but the reality is that, you know, some countries were already buying oil at very low prices, even below the price cap. So what impact has the price cap actually had? Well, there too, there is a, a set of general sanctions by the EU, particularly on Russian fuels that are now going into effect this week. And uh, the price cap, so we have to disentangle a few measures. 
I would say that uh, the jury is still out on its long-run impact. Initially, after December 5th, when it went into effect, you saw Russian export volumes collapse. But now in early January, they've picked up again if their four-week rolling average can be trusted. And the other question that I have is, where has Russia's current account surplus of 2022 gone? Like Agad said, a lot of this is classified now, but Brad Setzer and others who've studied the balance of payments flows have, I think, shown convincingly that we don't really know exactly where the surplus has ended up. So that also means that we don't really have a good sense of what the financial cushion is that the Kremlin could still have access to, whether it's held in offshore accounts, whether it's private companies. And indeed, there now seems to be evidence that private companies are selling indeed at much higher prices and not reporting this to the Russian Ministry of Finance. So perhaps there will be some internal uh, change in how oil revenues actually fund Russia uh, as well that we can expect in the next few uh, weeks or months. Mm. Let's move to China. Um, Agat, I I want to focus on last year's unprecedented sanctions where Washington tried to restrict Beijing's ability to access advanced semiconductors. You're the author of a book called Backfire, so I have to ask, are these sanctions going to backfire? Well, I think it's too early to say whether they are going to backfire, but I think it's worth asking the question because there has been a lot of discussions about decoupling the US economy and the Chinese economy. But the idea behind my book is also to ask the question of what will be the side effects and the ripple effects of such a decoupling. It's it's the same when one studies sanctions. I think that one needs to take a look at their side effect and ripple effects to ensure that they will remain effective in the long run, because they're the only solution between empty diplomatic declarations and deadly military interventions. So to go back to your question, I don't think that we know the answer, but I think that it is worth asking what the consequences of a decoupling of the US and Chinese economies will be. Will American companies and possibly European companies lose access to the Chinese market? Because it goes back to the point of Nick about the Russian economy. I don't think that we should expect China to sit and just say, okay, you want to decouple or you want to cut our access to semiconductors? No problem. And we will sit idle and not do anything. There will be policy responses. We do not know what they will be, but we can bet that Western companies could lose access to the Chinese market, which would entail a loss in revenues and possibly less expenses for R&D in the tech sector in Western countries. And what would that all mean also? China would probably double down on efforts to get access to advanced semiconductor technology. And since we know that semiconductors are used in both the civilian and military sector, what would it all mean if China got hold of the best semiconductors in the world, especially in the light of the Taiwan question? So I think we don't have the answers yet, but it is important to assume that China is going to respond and to have a think about what that means and what that means in a fragmented geopolitical landscape. So let's dig into that a bit more, Nick. I guess this raises the question, both with China and Russia, which we were discussing earlier, are these countries too big to target in this way? And on China specifically, I mean, surely developing economies don't want to be caught in a fight between America and China. So how do you think through sanctions on big countries in light of that? Well, one of the key questions with China is whether its trade partners in the rest of the world would join in sanctions 
uh, that the West would impose on China, or whether they would try and carve out a kind of non-aligned or neutral position, like some of them have done vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And Chinese trade with many of these countries in Latin America, Africa, and the rest of Asia is many times bigger than Russian trade. So it stands to reason that they would probably try and preserve some of their autonomy. That being said, of course, there are all sorts of levers that the West can use to try and inflict damage on China, particularly its uh, reliance on the US dollar, in its financial system, it's very heavily dollar reliant. And um, I think that means that commercially speaking, China is probably more protected than financially. Uh, but there again, a lot will hinge on the policy response. And one big question I have about this embargo uh, and the restrictions on uh, advanced microchips is whether the gain in the short run of uh, this decoupling in this sector will outweigh the long run loss of deterrence that is the result of China in the long run, right? They will probably find some alternative and uh, it might take a few years, but in the end, in the long run, Chinese dependence on US technology will probably be reduced and will that essentially have been worth it. I think this decision was made in the fall when it seemed like China was stuck in a zero COVID lockdown that it couldn't escape from. And then very quickly after that, we actually saw that they were able to respond much more quickly, dropping those measures painfully, but at the same time then engaging in a charm offensive. So this is a game that two can play. And I agree with Agat that there's a lot more uh, of a response uh, that can change the way that this plays out from the other side. Mm. Agat, I want to stay with China, but um, since Nick brought it up, I had a question from a subscriber, Trey, who wanted to know if an overuse of sanctions in general will lead to countries looking for alternatives to the dollar, whether that is a blockchain-related currency or something else entirely. Is that possible? What are your thoughts? Yes, I think that this was always to be expected. It is linked to sanctions overuse, but I think it was always to be expected that emerging countries, developing countries, would want to get rid of their, well, that their dependence on Western currencies or Western financial systems. And that's actually a story that I tell in the book. I think there are three main ways for countries to shield themselves from sanctions, to vaccinate their economies. And these three main ways are first, de-dollarization. You've mentioned it. I think it's, it's a very clear trend. The US dollar still is used for about 40% of global trade. But what that means, the other side of the coin, is that the majority of global trade is conducted not in US dollars. And actually, there is a statistic that I found really interesting. It's that since 2020, Russia and China conduct most of their bilateral trade in Russian rubles and in Chinese renminbi. And that's obviously not a random thing. It's a strategy, a clear strategy. And actually, there's been a lot of discussion about the freeze of the foreign exchange reserves of the Russian central bank. Actually, only half of these have been frozen. The Russian central bank had about 640 billion in US dollar reserves, equivalent US dollars. But only half of these were frozen because the other half was denominated, say, in Indian rupees or in Chinese renminbis or in gold. The second tool for, well, shielding their economies from sanctions, sanctions resistance is the term that I would use. And actually, one could make a parallel with antibiotics. Antibiotics overuse leads to antibiotics resistance. It's a bit of the same for sanctions. The second type of tool is alternatives to SWIFT. SWIFT is the global Rolodex of banks connecting all banks to each other. And China has an alternative called SIPS. So if China were to be cut off from SWIFT from one day to another, it would have a plan B. And there is also an offensive capability from the Chinese perspective, because 
one day, probably by 2040, China will become the world's largest economy. And it could well say, well, to do business with us, you need to use our financial system, SIPs, so it could cut off entire countries from the Chinese market. And finally, you've mentioned the third tool. It's about central bank digital currencies. Again, China, China leads the way. 300 million Chinese already use such a currency that is completely immune to US sanctions and obviously gives the Chinese leadership some surveillance capabilities. So all of this is happening. And of course, sanctions overuse is further fueling the phenomenon. Hmm. Now, Nick, we've focused so far on, you know, essentially large top 10 economies. And I'm curious how all of these tools and counterbalances uh, are different when you're looking at a smaller economy. So think of uh, Myanmar back when there were sanctions on Myanmar or North Korea or even Iran as a mid-sized economy. How does that work differently when the West seeks to sanction these countries? Are those more effective than sanctions on a big, big economy? Well, they can definitely do a lot of damage. And one issue that doesn't exist with these small economies is creating a very large international sanctions coalition, because it is simply much easier to get a large part of the international community to agree on putting sanctions on a small uh, economy like North Korea or Venezuela. The spillover effects for the rest of the world are not that significant. And as a result, that part of the equation is easier. It doesn't necessarily mean that in the long run, politically speaking, we get the kind of policy uh, changes that we want to see, like the end of a nuclear proliferation or improvements in human rights situation. And there also, there are other resources. Uh, not all of them are economic. A lot of these regimes also manage to use ideology and uh, their own historical experiences as a rallying point for a popular resistance. Uh, and uh, the other thing that you could point to is the clear innovation and sanctions evasion technology. Uh, it might be small on a financial and monetary scale, but it's clear now that a growing number of countries under sanctions are exchanging and sharing sanctions evasion techniques. And what I think we've, we're seeing now with Russian oil exports, no one would have predicted a year ago that most Russian oil exports would be uh, transported by a ghost fleet, uh, similar to that of Venezuela and Iran, and yet that's happened fairly quickly. So uh, there are still links also that these economies have to larger trading partners. Mm. You know, Gat, I'm curious about the role of the Global South in this. As the world becomes a little bit more multipolar, how does this change the way in which, say, Washington thinks through sanctions? And I guess, you know, underpinning all of this, is it your sense that the U.S. has overused sanctions to get us to this point? Well, I think that this is the big question. Um, I am actually worried about a lot of things happening in the global south on sanctions at the moment. I think that there is a lot of resentment in the global south against former colonial powers, so mainly European countries such as France and the UK. And I think that this narrative against former colonial powers now has an added element, and it is resentment against sanctions. And to me, what that shows is that Russian disinformation campaigns are working in full steam, for instance, in African countries, to blame sanctions for a number of things that are happening around the world. For instance, Russian propaganda is making the claim that sanctions are fueling food insecurity in developing countries. This is technically not true. There are no sanctions preventing Russia and Ukraine, of course, to export grains. But this narrative is gaining traction. And I think what this shows is that there is a lack of knowledge about what sanctions are, what they really do, how they really work. 
And to me, this is really a worry. And I would expect actually in the coming years and decades that the battle to win hearts and minds in a multipolar fragmented world will be about winning these hearts and minds in the global south because we have two blocks already being formed. We have a Western block that is very clear. We have a China and Russia and other rogue countries block. But where will the global south be? And actually there is a statistic that I like to quote about two-thirds of the global population live in countries that are either neutral or Russia-leaning when it comes to Ukraine. And, and to me, this is obviously a worry. And I think there will be a lot of work to do for the US and other Western countries in the global South to regain hearts and minds. Indeed. And it's a movement that's growing, uh, that two-third population statistic. You cite India as the president of the G20 this year is hoping to further uh, its own position as a voice for the global south. So we can expect more of that. Nick, I have a great subscriber question from Gary Dorst. And the question is this, if sanctions produce more blowback than positive results, then what can a country or a consortium of countries do when another country flouts international law and goes rogue? In other words, what's in the arsenal? Well, I would say that there is a whole spectrum of means that we can employ, but we have to take a step back and think about what the full range of tools in our toolbox actually is, all the way from diplomacy to threats of, of military action. Again, of course, if you can solve anything without military action, it's always much better. But um, the ideal sanctions... And when they do really work, and I think the original Iran deal still holds some lessons here from in 2015, are sanctions that are powerful enough to not be merely symbolic, but not so powerful as to needlessly antagonize and force a kind of fortress and uh, entrenchment response in the target. And that means that the sanctions must go hand in hand with some sort of demand that could reasonably be acceded to. And that seems to me the best way of making sanctions work. And in other cases, of course, a number of other forms of signaling, incentives and threats are important. Uh, there are also positive means. And I think right now, for example, uh, helping Ukraine, we do much more to help Ukraine to, by focusing on the economic restructuring of Ukraine in the long run, because it has lost a third of its GDP than by focusing on additional sanctions enforcement against Russia, where we are degrading the Russian economy, but the effect will be a few decimals or maybe a few percentage points of GDP. For Ukraine, it's existential. It's lost a third of its economy. So uh, thinking about actually how we can help our allies is oftentimes even more important than how we can uh, restrain the aggressors also. And uh, then the final thing I would say is, uh, it again, demands a balance between carrying a big stick and continuing to show proof of engagement with China from a deterrence point of view, if you think about what withholds China from invading Taiwan, I'm not sure that decoupling is actually the right way to go uh, when it comes to preventing a, a China-Taiwan conflict. From an optimizing deterrence standpoint, it may in fact be best to militarily prepare and militarily counterbalance China while continuing maximal economic engagement to keep China as dependent on the West as possible and combining those ostensibly contradictory things. So thinking about the full range of options, I think, and not thinking only about the technical sanctions enforcement. That's where I would find a look for an answer. Mm, that's a good argument and proposal. Um, Agat, I have another uh, terrific question from an FP subscriber, this one from Melissa Willard-Foster. And she asks, does the success of sanctions vis-a-vis -vis either China or Russia hinge on the willingness of the West to lift some of them in return for concessions? And then is that politically feasible, especially in the US? 
I think that's a great question. And actually, that's something that I wanted to add after everything that Nick said. I think that Western countries can make sanctions more effective when thinking about sanctions lifting. What that means here is that sanctions have big structural impacts, for instance, on the Iranian economy. And that makes sanctions lifting unappealing for countries under sanctions because they know that even if sanctions were to be lifted in return for a change in their behavior, well, maybe they wouldn't see any economic benefits from this. And I think that Iran's experience during the nuclear deal has been disappointing from Tehran's perspective because Western companies didn't go back to the Iranian market in droves. They were very worried about the U.S. reimposing sanctions and for a good reason, because the U.S. finally exited the nuclear deal. So I think that having a think about the strategy, about sanctions lifting and seeing it as a process is really key because otherwise there is a risk that countries under sanctions will say, well, anyway, we'll be under sanctions forever. So we have no incentive to change our behavior to comply with US demands. And I think this is really a key point in addition to working multilaterally. We know from the data that multilateral sanctions work better. So the US really needs to engage with the lies. I think this is very key. And also having clear objectives so that, again, the target country knows exactly what it needs to do to see sanctions being lifted. Mm. Uh, Nick, on that note, another great subscriber question, just this one from Camilla, um, asking about the impact on civilian populations. And I guess we can think about Iran, we can think about other countries that have been sanctioned. But she points out that often absent in all of these conversations about sanctions are the effects that are meted out on the civilian population, in particular, the most vulnerable, including children. What's your sense of how policymakers need to think through that dilemma of wanting to punish or hurt or restrain a government, but not wanting to hurt its population? Well, it's a very difficult one, and it's dealt with far too little in these discussions. But uh, one answer, uh, which also follows up actually on, on Agat's reply to your last question, is that we need to think about how uh, foreign policymakers can work also much better with the private sector and with NGOs. And this has to do with compliance, too, because one of the effects that we see is overcompliance. Oftentimes, there are no explicit sanctions on, for example, food being uh, shipped to countries under sanctions. And yet banks are unwilling to finance it. They are unwilling to back uh, medicine. And actually, what I got mentioned about uh, Russian propaganda in, in Africa is a good example. Um, it's true that there are no Western sanctions on Russian grain and fertilizer exports, yet there were a few months in early 2022 when those exports did go down because banks and insurers overcomplied, and it took time for guidance from Western governments to make clear that there weren't any uh, restrictions on this, and then it started again. So again, the Russian propaganda is wrong, but it does actually uh, hint, and it, it did pick out on a real effect, which is that the private sector oftentimes shapes by its responses the impact on ordinary civilians. And one of the things that this means is, you know, that we need to understand much better how the effects of the sanctions get baked into private sector decision making. Compliance departments, they rule the world in every major firm. And as a result, I would say that this is about public-private partnerships and policymakers giving real hard and enforceable guarantees to the private sector and to anyone who wants to continue to aid civilians. And I think right now with this big earthquake in Syria, right, the uh, sanctions against the Assad regime uh, are also something that we're going to, I think, hear much more about, uh, about how we can lift them to get more humanitarian aid uh, in there, if that might be necessary. 
Indeed, uh, uh, the death toll in Turkey and Syria, of course, rising as we speak. Nick, I just want to spend one more beat on what you mentioned about companies, because this is important, especially with the uh, Chinese uh, sanctions on, on advanced semiconductors, because is it right then that America has this extraordinary ability to get companies to comply to their sanctions, uh, not just you know, directly, but several layers down to subcontractors and sub-subcontractors. How do you see that playing out? And is resentment over that growing to the point where those kinds of sanctions can become less effective? You're right that the U.S. has extraordinary power that it can exert there. But the real obstacle, in my to my mind, in extending those sorts of sanctions, for example, in technology against China, is that there are uh, diplomatic and political bridges that one might not want to burn. So it's a balancing act. And ultimately, like you mentioned, the obstacle to enforcing them isn't technical because the US can, through the foreign direct product rule and other restrictions, ultimately get to the suppliers. The issue is a, is a political one. And uh, in the Netherlands and, and Japan, two key countries here, in, in the case of the restrictions against China, those diplomatic disagreements have been fairly muted, although they're very real when you talk to executives from the private sector. For them, right, they are much more trade-dependent economies than the United States. So it is really an important thing for the competitiveness of their private sector. But if you go to countries like, say, India, which supposedly the West needs in the Quad in order to counterbalance China, I really wonder whether the West will be willing to uh, burn bridges and whether the U.S., can really afford the diplomatic fallout from enforcing, say, its anti-Russia sanctions uh, on Indian trading behavior. And I think that ultimately there, you'll see uh, the real limits to sanctions are political and no longer technical. Um, Agat, uh, Tim Reed had a follow-on question uh, from what we were talking earlier about de-dollarization. And the question is whether Americans, uh, from conversations you've had, are at all worried about losing the benefits of having the world's currency. Um, and I I bring that up to sort of ask a larger question of where you see um, sanctions headed. I mean, this is largely in its current form a phenomenon of the last 50, 60 years, part of American dominance. But as the world looks a bit different, as China rises, as the rest of the world becomes more powerful, has a greater stake in geopolitics. Where do you see sanctions policies moving and shifting? Well, that's a great question. I'm sure Ivan could write an entire book about that or a PhD thesis. Just one word about what Nick said. And the US didn't implement sanctions on India after India bought S-400 Russian air defense missiles. So I think that was a sign of something. Um, to answer your question, I think... My view is that we are going towards a fragmented financial landscape. What I mean here is that usually the debate about US dollar dominance is painted in black and white terms. That is to say the US dollar is dominant or completely not. But I, I, I'm not entirely sure that this way of seeing things is the proper one. I think the reality will be more nuanced. I think that there is a chance that we will live in a fragmented financial world. What I mean here is that 
We could have a US-led bloc. We could have an EU-led bloc because actually the euro is used for 40% of global transactions these days on a par with the US dollar. And we could have a Chinese-led bloc and they would all have regional influence and clout. And what that would mean is that if we go back to the idea of having financial systems that are non-Western and that give countries the ability to circumvent sanctions or vaccinate themselves against sanctions, in a preemptive way. Well, that would mean that countries have the ability to completely bypass the Western financial system, which I think is dangerous because, for instance, tracking the actions of terror groups or groups involved in nuclear proliferation involves combing through financial transactions. So if there is an alternative, we would live in a world whereby Western countries are limited in their ability to tackle these issues. So I think that is the direction of travel, a fragmented financial landscape. And actually, it mirrors the global landscape. We have a geopolitical landscape that is very fragmented these days. I think the war in Ukraine has accelerated this phenomenon. An economic landscape that is also fragmented. So really, this explosion and these blocks emerging and forming, and it goes back to your question about the global south. The key question is, where will emerging countries side where which bloc will they be part of and that is to me a key question and an open question nick i'll just give you the last question this is foreign policy a lot of policymakers are watching this and will listen to it later on our podcast if you had to tell them to change their strategy or adapt their strategy uh, when it comes to imposing sanctions on other countries what would you say I think I would uh, hark back to what I said earlier and uh, realize the breadth of the tools at your disposal, but also think about if a disagreement uh, with other countries is about politics, whether there isn't a political solution for it rather than an economic one. And returning to the original arena of the disagreement and trying to hash it out there, that would be one thing. And then the other thing, and that is also something I argue in the book, historically speaking, the world has been changed and transformed much more by the assistance of aid to allies and victims than it has been uh, through the, by the punishment of aggressors. We remember that punishment because it it's exemplary and it's dramatic, but ultimately the US really changed the world in the 1940s when it arose as a hegemon through Lend-Lease and the Marshall Plan, but particularly Lend-Lease, which was more than four times as large as the Marshall Plan spread uh, American products and American equipment all throughout the world and created the material infrastructure for what became the United Nations. And that's been all but forgotten. And uh, today, of course, we do have the Lend-Lease rhetoric in the aid to Ukraine, but it's largely military aid. But the real thing that is, I think, behind a lot of this conflict between Russia and Ukraine, too, is that Ukraine has been a society in limbo for three decades. It developmentally has not managed to advance since the end of the Soviet Union, and it lacks an economic future. And that is something that now needs to be built and constructed and envisioned. Uh, with much more boldness, I think, than before. Uh, and ultimately, uh, that's the economic challenge, I think, that's far larger than the sanctions against Russia. Indeed it is. That's all we have time for, unfortunately. Agathe Marais, Nicholas Mulder, thank you so much for taking time to be with us here in FP Live. Thank, thank you for having me. And that was just our second episode of FP Live on this feed. Thank you for listening. Again, if you want to watch these in video live, you can do that on foreignpolicy.com slash live. 
Subscribers get a chance to be a part of the conversation and submit their questions. Those questions then help frame these discussions. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. I'll see you next time. analyst and columnist Danielle Moody. And I'm writer with Jahat Ali, and we've come together to lead you away from the lies and out of the gaslight. This, this is, is Democracy Ish. Absolutely very excited to speak with the host of the Mary Trump show, Mary Trump. This is the Republican Party. There's there aren't different wings of it anymore. The entirety of the Republican Party is a white supremacist fascist party. Brian Tyler Cohen. People are focused on the attacks on democracy. They understand that this extremism is leading to further attacks and further erosions of rights. We discuss the serious issues and threats that face our nation. Join us on Democracy-ish everywhere you get your podcasts.